the right move. The Property Podcast with Andrew Simmons and JP. A clean vest, a new year and a hot show. Are you you raring to go, Simo? I thought you were going to say a hot shower. I have got running water in my house. Um, But uh, yes, I'm raring to go back with a bang. 2024 starting on a Monday. You know, that puts the OCD in there, doesn't it? Start the year on a Monday and it's an even numbered year. So things are looking good. And that is how I'm starting 2024, JP. You've got all your pattern worked out. I hadn't researched it that much. (laughs) Now, let's set out who and what is in this episode, Simo. Well, we've got Emma Porter, co-founder of the Rebuild site, coming on uh, shortly. Yeah, it's a really interesting story, that great organisation. And and the the work they're doing couldn't be any more valuable. Now, uh, also, how did those Boxing Day listings go? We talked about it. We chewed the fat in the Christmas edition of the podcast. Was there a boom or was it more like boom in? And a bit of a damp squib. (laughs) We're going to find that very soon. And I'm going to burn for that one, Simo. And we've also got Alan uh, with his self-build updates. Yeah, it's been a little while since we spoke and uh, we'll discover exactly where the build uh, is at at Grafton Regis in Northamptonshire. Charlie says we'll be summing up a, a key property story of the moment and I dare say we'll leave you in absolutely no doubt where Charlie Lambdin stands on it. That is all to come. Selling, buying, investing. Are you making the right move? First up, then, listings that have appeared online on the portals from Boxing Day onwards. We threw forward to this in December in the podcast, Simo. Houses for sale that have come on the day after Christmas Day. Now, I've got some headline figures from the portals this end. In Yeovil, there were 67, yo-yo Yeovil. Uh, 88 in York. Oxford shows 99 properties came uh, to market if you like came onto the portals uh, boxing day and afterwards and in southampton i mean this is uh, to me this is pretty big 310 310 in southampton that made the portals boxing day and thereafter what about your patch let's let's have a look at sort of immediately where you are well what's that been saying so 50% 50% of the new instructions were from moi, uh, but uh, BS48, we had uh, new instructions for, mm. would you believe, just for mm. BS37, so that is uh, north of Bristol, uh, South Gloss. So those two patches that I cover, 12 new instructions in BS37. So four and 12 on the north and south sides of of bristol um but interestingly you obviously went out and did your bit of research on those uh locations i did mine and i came back with that there were five and 14 relatively to those postcode regions that i've researched Mm. reduced so not new instructions but reductions okay more than and and relatively percentage-wise pretty much the same uh, more reductions than new instructions and i think that does kind of um hit home quite interestingly where things currently sit yeah. within the market that you know that southampton figure it wow i mean that that blows me away with those numbers with 310 new new listings mm. that is 
phenomenal for Southampton. Obviously, I, I don't know what that looks like specifically, but that is, that's big numbers. I mean, you know, Yeovil, for example, your minimum number or your lowest number that you found mm-hmm. of 67 is you know more than 10 times my BS48 figure. Yeah. But that does show as well, JP, don't forget, a, a complete disparity across the country. So there's all these commentators out there who are saying one size fits all when as i've been saying all through this and when i give information and talk about things i'm very very specific that i talk about my patch Mm. Um, and that's what commentators need to do is stop giving us this the market is amazing because they're focusing on you know something like the southampton figure you know it needs to be focused on you know specific drilled down individual areas Mm. well and this is what i was going to say simo in so much as it's useful information it kind of isn't particularly useful information because there there are such regional variations that it's it's just sort of saying well yeah there's one or two regions one or two counties or cities that are more buoyant than others and that's about as much as we can read into it definitely and uh you know again as i've said before you know in previous episodes that the market moves in such a way that if during our covid years you know good old covid years we had people move to the southwest from london Mm. you know this big exodus of london so the markets in from bristol south if you like so bristol western supermare burnham on sea bridgewater you know down through into devon exeter you know exeter boomed in covid mm. because they they put on or there were flights two or three flights a day from exeter to london city so people were able to exit london and move to a much more rural environment um and and they did and that had a knock-on effect of driving those property prices into a direction in which you know nobody really realized mm. Now that is reversing. We're getting people being called back into offices more in cities. Uh, you know, teams are, uh, you know, it has been seen that teams are dysfunctional when they're not working together and they're working remotely. So we are seeing people change. So move back towards London potentially. Um, but that has the knock on effect that we don't have the movements of the high values coming to the regions. And that is something that uh, is going to be playing out over the future property mm. um over the months in the property market because it's going to it's going to take but you will always have people moving so so my bs48 analogy is always that people move you know and, and sorry to people who aren't around bristol who don't understand this but people generally uh, start off in a flat in clifton dinky you know double income <laughs> no kids and they then move to the likes of bs3 so ashton Bedminster, Southville, you know, that up and coming, Lower Clifton, as, as as we call it. And then they move out to the North Somerset area. So if the market is locked, let's say in Clifton, that has a knock-on effect to the market in BS3, and that then has a knock-on effect to the market in BS48, um, if that is the general move. There are these patterns that you yeah. see in the market, yeah. but absolutely, the Boxing Day bounce wasn't very bouncy. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and 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 we and as you said, we kind of knew that was going to be. And and as I, I said in our Christmas episode, yeah. we were actually looking to put uh, properties on for the new year instead of Boxing Day, mm-hmm. and I think that's worked. Uh, so one that we listed on Saturday, 
so what would that have been? What was the Saturday before New Year? Thirtieth, wasn't it? Uh, so listed on the thirtieth. Uh, today, the f- we're recording this on the fourth of January. As it happens, we've already sold that. Well, we've taken an offer, uh, which is likely to be accepted on one of those mm, properties okay. that we listed. So I think that's good because it shows that there are still people out there and things will move, but it's got to be at the right price. Well, if I had an offer bell, I'd ring it for you, Simo. Ding dong. <laughs> and I suppose if nothing else, we've proven that Yeovil takes no BS. I fail. Yes. Now, yes. in the best known places for podcasts, this is The Right Move, the leading property podcast. You're with Simo and JP. Now, what say we find out um, about a great, a really cracking initiative in the Northeast Simo that means building is not only kinder to the planet, but benefits the community in other ways too. So line it up, Simo. Yes, so... Emma, she's the co-founder of the Rebuild site uh, up in Carlisle. When was it, Emma, that you were struck that this was something that you know you really must do? Um, so probably had a long time of thinking it was something someone else really must do, and um, and then about two years ago decided that actually we'll do it ourselves. Um, so I, I mean, years ago I remember going to circular economy conferences and talking about how the construction industry needs to move from a linear build use demolish model to a circular build use and then deconstruct and use those materials to build the next building and sounds great but i'm i'm from a construction background and i remember just thinking we the industry's so far away from being able to do that and um, someone needs to figure out how that's going to work um and then yeah two years ago i thought right i'll do it myself yeah so emma what was happening before the rebuild site in terms of trade, getting rid of surplus materials and, and things like that? So, well, the industry has done quite a lot to reduce what goes to landfill in the last couple of years. And, you know, there's particularly in procurement, uh, like big public contracts, there's a big drive to talk about sustainability and minimising waste. And contractors don't want to be wasting useful materials either. So there's lots of contractors that will be thinking about maybe moving materials from one site to the next, or they maybe bring it back to the yard. Um, or it gets handled by a waste management company that'll do, say maybe bricks might get crushed to make recycled stone or timber might go to make bio, to biomass burners for energy. But there isn't really any options available for the, particularly the bigger contractors to, to get that back into reuse. And, you know, the way if you do a project at home, your leftover bits, you could put them on Facebook or eBay or FreeCycle or Freegal. That's not really an option for the big contractors because they've got a very tight program with high prelim costs of getting the site set up. So at the end of a job, they really need to get like cleaned up and off the site quickly. And and so that means that a lot of useful stuff does end up in skips, albeit not in landfill, but still not being used for its best purpose. And the uh, transformation of behaviours that you, know, you and Rebuild Site have been uh, so intrinsic to uh, Emma, Presumably, there's been a, a lot of great feedback. What what sorts of things have, have people and organisations said to you? Yeah, we we have we often talk about how we've got like the nicest customers ever. I mean, and even the contractors themselves, the contractors aren't putting this stuff in skips because you know they hate the planet and they don't care. <laughs> they just don't have another route available. So, with me being from a contracting background, and um, because my other job is I'm managing director at Story Contracting, um. Uh, we we really set up rebuild to make it easy for the contractors to to use our services. So the way it works, they pay a subscription. We go and collect their surplus from their sites for them. They don't need to sort it or price it or bring it to us. We go and get it. 
then we bring it back to our store and then we either give it for free to community projects or we sell it to general public. So loads of our customers coming in are people doing like self-builds or DIY or renovations. And I think probably the thing we hear the most from customers is, I wish we'd come here first before we went to someone else or, you know, I just spent a hundred pounds on this and it's here for 30. So uh, we hear a lot of, a lot of kind of customers who wish they'd heard about us sooner. So, you know, you've been really successful in and around Carlisle, but, you know, do you see this as being replicated all around the country? Yeah, so we we always had the intention of it being something we would scale and, and that lends itself to a network. And because it doesn't really make sense for our deliveries and collections to cover a massive geographical area because it's big and heavy and because we care about sustainability, we don't really want to be using a load of diesel doing deliveries 100 miles away. That doesn't really make sense. It makes much more sense for this to be a, a local kind of community-led thing. But because this is the first one that's doing this, we just wanted to make sure we knew what we were doing first. So the Carlo one has been up and running open to the public for 18 months now. I feel confident enough to say the Carlo one now works and we know what we're doing here. So we're actively looking for a second site in West Cumbria. And, and we're also talking to a few um, local authorities about maybe a partnership or how would we how would we scale it up? So West Midlands Combined Authority in Glasgow, for example, are both areas very interested in, in doing something similar. So yeah, we're just trying to figure out how do we scale and still do a good job. That's brilliant. And in amongst all the kind of dreams, the, the ambitions, it's, it's part of you thinking, I'm pretty sure we could see skips as a thing of the past. Maybe not completely the past, but we definitely, I mean, it, I do find that I can't drive past the skip now without looking at it and thinking, oh, if that could have come to us, I would have taken that. Um, but there's still plenty in there that I definitely would not touch with a bad bottle. So um, we are quite picky about what we take. We, you know, we, we don't touch aggregates at all. Like we don't do any processing or recycling here. It's it's literally just like the as new stuff that would have gone to waste. Um, down the line, a long way down the line, I would like to see us handling like materials that have been in a building already and reclaimed. But at the minute, it's we, we, just the surplus from sites, which is a staggering amount, really. I mean, paint is a good one. We, we started doing paint this year. Something like 50 million litres of paint are incinerated in the UK every year. Um, it's like a obscenely high number. Um, and so we're part of a community repaint scheme. So we stock paint and um, and we buy from a company called Recolor, who are another not-for-profit community interest company. They collect small, like the park tins, and then they filter and clean and recolor it and remanufacture paint from that. So there's there's some really good things beginning to happen. Um, just, yeah, we could definitely do a lot more. Of course, it, it just makes absolutely no financial sense to just be dumping materials. No, no, skips are expensive. It does make financial sense in some ways, though, because if you think about a big job for a contractor, they're on a very tight program and they probably get, like, in fact, we just, just before this call, we buy some key rings because someone's made us some little key rings, but we need the rings for them. And so to buy 50 was only a pound more than it was to buy 30. And you often see that, you know, buying a full load is almost the same price as a half load. So actually, you may as well buy a full load because the cost for a contractor of running short are very high. Like, you can't have half a pack of bricks short if you're building a house. You know, like, you, you really, that's a major problem. It's That's a much bigger problem than having a couple of packs left over at the end. So the commercial incentives do lean towards just being a bit cautious and having a little bit extra just in case from, you know, an efficiency perspective. 
particularly during COVID where we saw really long leading times, that probably made the problem much worse because like in the same way as consumers were buying toilet roll, builders were probably buying extra bricks for a period because they, you can't risk running out. You can't risk your program being held up because you're short of bricks. So there is a financial cost of having to hire skips to get rid of them at the end and of having bought materials you don't need. But that financial cost is less than, than having less than you need and interrupting a program, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, perfectly. Headline case study time. What, what, what would be for you a great example of surplus materials being reused in a positive way in your community? Oh, we've done some super community schemes. We've done, we've just recently done a garden for a women's refuge in Carlisle. We did a community garden for Aid UK recently. They had a little scrap bit of land and then they wanted to just make it a nice outdoor space. So they got, they got blocks and stuff to make planters and gutters to do like a vertical green wall. And yeah, they got all kinds. So um, we've got some lovely schemes. There's a, we do lots of like um, scrap play type packs for schools. Um, there's a cold you red squirrels got a load of timber from us to make squirrel feeders. We had a customer, this isn't a community project. This is, this is just a customer that bought it, but a customer recently, I don't know if anyone, if you follow us on Facebook, we put it up recently, a customer built like a club Tropicana style bar in their garden. And the, the structure was just made with pallets. And then the cladding is like, um, pallet wood and plasterboard, the insulation from us and the fascia was from us and the boards for the floor was from us and the paint. And the glass and the door, and it is so cool from just leftover parts. So yeah. Well, I, I was going to say some of our customers do amazing schemes. Really, really cool. I, I was going to say I hope the drinks are free at this. Club he, he says they are. He said, <laughs> I said to him, "Want to come and drink in this bar?" And he said, "Well, of course, the drinks are free." With reusing and repurposing materials, is that supported at political level? I think you're starting to see, so you see circular economy principles and sustainability being written a lot now into procurement for public sector work. So, you know, rail or uh, highways or nuclear, anything that's public sector, definitely have a strong element of that in the procurement sector. So there's a lot of kind of, a lot of desire to do. It's written into lots of policies. It's written into lots of plans and strategies. Um, I just don't think there's enough kind of practical application on the ground to figure out, okay, well, that sounds good, but how are we going to do it? How are you going to get the material from one site to another? What about warranties? What about pricing it? What about storing it? What about delivering it again? What about the data? So, so and that really rebuild was set up to try and figure out, you know, the actual practicalities of okay, well, let's see if let's see if we can do that. Let's see how what that would inv- involve. So yeah, there's there's definitely a strong desire to do it. Just probably more action would uh, not go amiss. And and how would anybody that hasn't already engaged with rebuild engage with you? Do they? need to come to you call you up email how does that side of it work yeah our social media has been a very good way for us getting the word out um facebook is probably the way that most of our customers learn about what stock we've got in we've struggled to get a really good um database of our stock on our website just because the stock coming in is so unpredictable we don't know what's coming in until it arrives so we've not managed to get that working well on our, our website's great for information of how we work but stock is facebook is probably better and then we're open to the public like a normal shop um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday if people are in kind of Carlisle area. Thanks so much, Emma. Emma Porter there, the co-founder of the Rebuild site and their website is rebuildsite.co.uk. You're with the right move. Subscribe to us now on all major podcast apps. 
Uh, yeah, worth noting, Simo, the, the Chartered Institute of Building have this statement on their website from Amanda Williams, who's their head of environmental sustainability. She says, the construction industry has a vital role to play in responding to the twin challenge of climate change and biodiversity loss. We must harness all the skill and ingenuity of the sector as we aim to ensure the projects we deliver today make a positive contribution to the kind of future we want to see. This comprehensive guide, this is their guide to sustainability in the built environment, is essential reading for construction professionals as they work to make their difference to this defining challenge and put sustainability at the heart of everything they do. So they've, they've got this guide that gives reference points uh, every step of the way in, in a build. I mean, what about your your neck of the woods? Do you think sort of South Gloss, Bristol, North Somerset, etc., can learn from Carlisle, or is there, or is there good stuff going on? I think every area can learn from Carlisle, to be honest, and rebuild. It's a really good scheme. A few years ago, I, I developed a, a, an old farmhouse, as I think we've spoken about on here before. Mm. And in doing so, you inevitably over-order, even for me as a individual guy that was ordering materials for builders on site on one property and then what you do with all those materials come the end they just literally do go in the skip and it costs for you to do that now sustainability as well is about reusing not just about being able to use those materials that might be going into the skip in my mind is also about reusing materials from the development site so like alan for example reusing some of his stone and things like that that to me is about the sustainability and in fact i was talking to a couple today uh doing a viewing at a property who they were looking at it and saying yeah well how could we extend this and we were talking about different options for extensions and having a look at what it might look like and this property uh was in a conservation area and I said, look, you know, you're going to have a bit of a problem here when it comes to getting planning permission. You need to have you know, relevant materials and make it look like part of you know, the original. So we were looking at it and we realized today, for example, and it's, it's, it's really relevant to this, is that you know, potentially we could or they could come along and they could knock down an outbuilding and use that stone, local stone, to face a new part of the building. So it would be built in a modern construction but look like uh old and that would be sustainable because it'd be reusing those materials on site and that's not only sustainable for uh the environment it's also sustainable for your wallet given the cost of materials these days and how things have increased so exponentially over the last 12 18 months Mm. um i think it is really important to be able to have access to to this sort of thing and i think from what emma was saying in that there is that it's more those larger scale developments where they might have pallets and pallets and pallets of roof tiles but you could still use you'd have enough to do a house for example and that i think is really important it's difficult when it's a a pallet of block paving that doesn't match anything else um (laughs) that that's obviously when overruns have got to go into the skip unless of course a company like um or you know uh, the the rebuild uh, guys can can build up a stock of that sort of thing from various places the point you both you and emma made about uh, yes of course first and foremost it's it's ethical it's kind to the environment to the ecosystem but also you know it, it does it does provide that incentive it, it incentivizes it when people 
you mentioned obviously Alan that comes on to talk about his self build shortly can get stuff that's either low cost or no cost you know Facebook marketplace passes on some stones and there you are so it's a it's, it's a great scheme and they're not only they're using their know-how their nows and skills but they're connecting people up and I think sometimes that's half the battle isn't it to make sure that A talks to B B talks to C and then things aren't ending up in landfill or elsewhere so yeah great and th- thanks again uh, to Emma brilliant brilliant uh, uh, scheme up there so yeah Alan our friendly neighbourhood pub owner chef and self builder is on soon to bring you up to speed with his soon to be new house but first we must do this so 2024 what's it got in store for us well i think everyone agrees that there's more confusion about the housing market now than there has been for some time when as is normally the case the housing market is generally trending up in price and there's a bit of stability everyone knows where they stand and the risks such as they are are almost quantifiable. But in this market, where we see conflicting headlines on a daily basis about house prices rising, house prices falling, the risks of making a bad choice are much higher. And so I would caution the following. I'll give you a quick example, right? So today, Halifax released their December house price index saying that prices went up 1.1% in December. Well, the question I would ask is this, if that's the case, which by the way, I don't think it is, I think it's a skewed average transaction value based on changing transaction volumes. But if that was the case, then why would in the same month, Right Move report asking prices have fallen across the board, both month on month and year on year? Hmm? Can't be both, can it? I think that the reason Halifax is average transaction value, which is a single value calculated from all of their mortgage transactions, is rising is because that's what happens when you have fewer transactions at a lower value. Now, everyone who makes their living selling houses and mortgages, or should I say the commentators on that industry who make a living selling houses and mortgages, are all doing their best to puff things up. Because if the market's rising, it creates a sense of urgency for buyers to get in before it's too late. And that, of course, is what people do to try and create more transactions. But actually, I think this, I think that falling house prices right now would increase transaction volumes. There is a lot of pent-up demand, but it can no longer afford what the market wants. So lowering house prices will increase transactions, and increasing transaction volumes is good for everyone. Nobody loses out when transaction volumes increase, and, and my whole campaign is to make it easier for people to move when they need to move, no matter what the market is doing. So if you are a seller in 2024, my view is that house prices are coming down and that you should choose your agent like your future depends on it because it does. Do not compromise on the quality of your agent. Do not compromise on the quality of the marketing of your property. And most of all, do not overprice. But if you've got a really good agent, then they'll take care of that and make sure that you don't overprice. If you are in a fortunate enough position to be buying in 2024 as a first-time buyer, just make sure you don't overpay. And whatever you think is going to happen to the market for properties you are buying where you're buying them, you've got to form your own opinion on what you think is going to happen there. Um, I would caution against buying in 2024 if you want to sell within less than five years. There's a very real risk you won't be able to, or you'll take a big loss if you do. But if you're buying a home to stay in it for at least five years, preferably seven or ten, and it's because you need a home, 
go ahead and buy one, but just don't overpay. What do I mean by don't overpay? Don't get into a bidding scenario. We have an unusual buyer's market now, which means that there is more choice for buyers. There's more property for sale, so you don't need to get into a big, frenzied bidding war. If an agent says there's lots of interest, say, great, okay, good luck, but uh, if, if none of it comes to fruition and you don't have any other offers, give me a call back. If the agent then says to you, and by the way, Simo won't like this, <laughs> being an agent. If the agent says to you, oh, okay, but if you were going to offer, what do you think you'd offer? Say, no, 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 I'm not playing that game. I'm not playing that game. I'm not going to give you a number that makes you say to other people that you've got an offer when you haven't got an offer. I will only offer, I will give you a formal offer in writing if you confirm to me that there are no other offers. Thanks. That's Charlie Lambdin there as ever on our regular slot. Uh, and uh, now uh, we're going to hear from Alan uh, in Northamptonshire from his self-build. Well, as you could probably hear, the uh, banging in the background and what have you, the builders are back on site again. They didn't come on the 2nd of January because uh, of that storm. So, uh, yeah, wouldn't want to be standing on a roof. But all the roof trusses are up now, and apparently in the next few days they're going to be putting the battens on the roof. So I believe the felt goes on first, so I think we might be semi-watertight. The windows are on order. Uh, what else has changed? Oh, yeah, we decided we're going to build an Inglenook fireplace in there now, although that's an old-fashioned type thing, but it is an old barn, so uh, modern at one end, and then uh, an Inglenook at the other side with a contemporary-looking boiler. So um, that's about as much as I've got to say at the moment. Thanks ever so much, uh, Al. And things that, you know, oh, they're so close, within touching distance, they're going to be in it soon, and uh, we'll let you know when they are. Uh, now... Next time, when we're back, Simo, the next episode of the podcast, Michael Hall is the MD of a business called Envision Studios. And they're all about, you should look at the website, all about creating superb quality imagery for architecture and interiors projects. It's like, you know, amazing CGI visualizations, that sort of thing. So we're going to be having him on, aren't we? Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that's coming now, uh, really part of people want to see and visualize what they're going to get. And some of their work is stunning. I mean, it really is. And it's funny because we're getting uh, requests for staging as well as part of, you know, we introduce professional photography, but it's getting to that next point of staging and uh, mm. especially with empty properties, you know, it's really, it's really interesting. And, and having this, um, uh cgi uh is is great for sort of architecture as you say and you know trying to help visualize what the architects are designing you know gone are the days of the, the sketchbook that the architect used to bring rain but it, it really is great so really looking forward to speaking to uh to michael yeah michael hall is from envision studios and with us next time on the property podcast so we're done cheers to all our fine contributors and see you shortly simo 10 for jp